Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Soulful Revolution, a podcast at the intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. I invite you to pull up a seat at the table as I speak with soulful revolutionaries whose lives are a powerful source of hope and inspiration for me, as I trust they will be for you also. I'm Lauren Grubaugh-Thomas, a priest, writer, spouse, and twin mama living in Littleton, Colorado, on the traditional homelands of the Arapaho and Cheyenne peoples. My guest today is Andre Henry. Andre is a best-selling author, an award-winning musician, and an activist based in Los Angeles. Andre, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I want to begin by asking you, as I do all of my guests, what it means for you to be a soulful revolutionary, somebody who stands and works at this intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. So to me, that intersection is one that I underestimated early on. Hmm. Actually, maybe not immediately, because when I first really started getting active talking about racial justice in my case, you know, I was doing so from my spiritual upbringing, you know, in the Christian tradition, right? And then what I learned, you know, where the where the title of my book comes from is that a lot of Christians actually didn't believe that to be anti-racist, to pursue social justice was a part of their tradition, their religious tradition, their spiritual tradition. Now, I mean, that's bullshit, but that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's what they, that's what they seem to believe. So that's when I, I kind of dismissed the value of spirituality because it seemed to me that the Christians I grew up with were using, were using their religion as a reason not to pursue a racially just world, right? And the the folks that I knew that were spiritual but not religious were also doing a, another type of spiritual bypassing thing, which is like, oh, we need, we need to we just need to love each other, or talking about aliens and you know these corrupt systems and you know. But, you know, it always goes left because when they start talking about corrupt systems, they start talking about, like, Fauci, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, so I'm like, we're not talking about the same thing. <laughs> but I found that the more that I studied nonviolent revolutions was the more that I found uh, people of some kind of faith, whether that was Gandhi's concept of ahimsa that comes from that, you know, right. from, from, from his Hindu faith. And of course, Dr. King and many civil rights activists, you know, in their Christian traditions. And, you know, I just kept running into that. And so, um, and people talk about the importance of it. Like Asada Shakur has this whole chapter of how she idolized this one activist. Um, and she met her in prison because that activist had become a political prisoner before. Asada Shakur, and so she meets her in prison, and she writes this whole section about how people used to criticize this activist because of her Christian faith, without realizing that's what made her radical, you know. Mm. And I appreciated that from Asada Shakur's perspective because she's not writing as she's not she's not writing 
a Christian book to Christian people about the value of Christian, <laughs> uh, the Christian tradition of social justice. She just respected the fact that this woman that she idolized practiced the tradition and that's what brought her to the work. So that's a long way of saying for me, like it has, it has been a complicated relationship between those things, but I'm, I've been learning that what we talk about when we're talking about social change is in part intangible, right? Mm. In part, it has to do with the essence of, you know, it, our common sense. It has to do with the the vibe of the culture, the the things that we believe in. All of those things, I believe, you know, are spiritual, you know, or a way of talking about that thing, of about those things is spiritual. It's invaluable. We can't change the world without it. So for me, a lot of it has to do with my own pursuit of healing, right? Of soul care, of understanding what oppression does to our bodies, to our imaginations, to, you know, to our inner selves, mm-hmm. right? And giving my attention to that in a way that I didn't when I was discounting that, you know, it for myself. And then also realizing that, you know, some of the work externally has to address that too, you know, in culture. There's two threads I want to pull on there. The first is your practice of resilience and what Mm -hmm. that practically looks like for you. What are the practices that sustain you? Mm -hmm. And the second is this question of the need for revolution in order to be well, the need for social change in order to be whole yeah i see you talking a lot in in social media spaces about how therapy isn't enough that we need you need a revolution that we need a revolution in order to be our whole healed selves yeah this is and these are intertwined because and uh, well these are intertwined and i think that a lot of people don't see how these are intertwined because we have been socialized into compartmentalizing so much of our reality right Mm -hmm. especially where you know, people believe that that the personal sphere and the public sphere or the private sphere and the personal sphere are not connected. You hear people say all the time, like, you know, that politics don't affect them and da 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 it's not going to make a difference. We don't we all don't have the luxury of seeing it that way when you understand in a in an embodied way how politics affects you because you've been racialized or some other, you know some other category you've been put into, right? Mm-hmm. Into society. To try to, to try to get out of the abstract for a second, it's like resilience and revolution go together because of the fact that we live in our bodies. Mm. <laughs> like because, because we're embodied individuals. Being othered in any way, being discriminated against, being persecuted in some way. When someone refuses to rent an apartment to you because you're black when someone when you get expelled from school because of your natural hair, hair texture when somebody calls you the n-word or something like that i'm trying to get this out of uh, get it more and more concrete yeah that has an effect on your body your actual body cells respond to that type of violence and that is something that is not common sense in our society. 
We tell children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Mm. We, tell, we tell little boys when they skin their knees, don't you cry, walk it off, da 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 And so we live in a culture that tells us not to pay attention to what is happening to our bodies and what our bodies are telling us, you know. And we could go on down the line, you know, the things that women are told about how to, you know, how to contradict what your body is telling you and how to not take seriously what is happening to you in your body, right? Well, your body knows. <laughs> yeah. Your body knows, you know, when something is wrong. And so what happens is we feel stress, we become anxious, we get depressed, you know, all these kinds of things. Now, as I'm saying that, the mental health field is way behind on this. Mm-hmm. And you're, I, in an interview on my podcast, we interviewed a biologist who said, you're never going to get a prescription for a living wage and access and water and access to food and all those kind of things. I say that to say that the medical field and the mental health field is way behind on this. Um, because in many ways, these institutions have been shaped to uphold the status quo, right? So, <laughs> so, th- so they don't, they also have not taken seriously enough the way that the effect of society on your body. Right? And on your mental health, on your wellness. Okay. But this has always been true. If you read uh, about slave uprisings, you know, or uprisings of the enslaved, you know, for instance, I'm thinking of the Black Jacobins, right? And you pay attention to what CLR James is writing about the emotions, how people felt being not just the abuse they endured, but what it did to their spirits, right? Franz Fanon writes about this in his in his in his work, and he is a psychotherapist, or he was a psychotherapist. He's no longer with us. Writing about all of these decolonial struggles and writing about what colonialism seeks to do to your spirit, to your mind, the connection is already there. But when you go to the when you go to the to your therapist and say. You know what? The fact that men constantly underestimate how much I know, are constantly explaining things to me that I already know, are constantly interrupting me, are that I have to walk around with my keys between my fingers because I'm not sure if I'm safe on my on the way to to my vehicle after work, or whatever. It is driving me out of my mind. I don't want to live in a world like this. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, when you explain that to your therapist, they want to say, OK, now let's talk about your relationship with your mother. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the solution, the solution to what you're feeling is not just in your personal biology, if it is at all. Yeah. Right. Like This is not about an imbalance of serotonin. You know, and I'm speaking not as a mental health professional, you know, people who are listening, but the primary issue that you're explaining to your therapist or to this practitioner is not that I mysteriously am unhappy. In fact, during, you know, the women's movements um, of the past, they called patriarchy the problem without a name. Mm -hmm. 
right? Because we because women were not given the freedom to sit down and discuss their stories and see that the reason that they were experiencing such unhappiness with domestic life was not a personal defect, right? Which is what men were telling them. <laughs> like, oh, you're just so you're 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 broken because nature says that you as a woman should be happy in this setup or whatever, right? No, the solution to this problem is actually that the world has to change because the thing that is making you depressed, the thing that is making you anxious is the way that the world is arranged. Just in case I haven't been clear enough, I just, just to say that like when you are feeling othered all the time, when people make you feel like you're not as beautiful, not as smart, not as desirable, not as human as other people, yes, that produces that or that could logically produce issues like issues with your self-esteem and anxiety and 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 depression and 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 the like you know when when you're seeing people like you murdered in grocery stores and mass shootings and the government refuses to do anything serious of, about preventing mass shootings you know yeah how how could that not produce anxiety to people who are paying attention because now they're thinking am i going to be safe right Am I going to be safe when I go to church? Am I going to be safe when I go to the grocery stores kind of stuff? And so that's, and I know I've taken a long time to to make this connection and to tease that out, but this is how both resilience and revolution are connected here because the resilience part comes in because the first place that I feel racial oppression is in my body. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I explained earlier, and there's there's medical research to back this up. Yeah, the first place I feel racial oppression is in my body. Mm-hmm. So I started doing this, you know, by dragging a hundred pound boulder around with me everywhere I went in Los Angeles. Um, and the reason I dragged that boulder around was to show people this is what it feels like in my body. This is what it feels like in my body to see police murder unarmed Black civilians on television. This is what it feels like in my body to be stopped and searched for drugs and weapons several times. This is what it feels like in my body for people to assume that, I, um, that I'm not intelligent, that I wouldn't be articulate that I don't know what I'm talking about, that that my opinion can't be trusted. This is what it feels like in my body for people to regard me as a suspect, as prone to danger, as rapacious, and all these other things. That's what it feels like in my body. Now, what I did was go straight for, well, that's what's making me feel this way, so let's go change the world, you know? Mm. Because I didn't know that even though I felt the anxiety, the depression, all those kinds of things, I didn't know that there was anything I could do about it. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, other than take breaks, try to rest, do some things that are enjoyable, and all those things are good. But now I understand that resilience, you know, according to Rick Hansen, who is a, a neuroscientist, psychologist, therapist, that I follow and I've been learning a lot from is that resilience is like a collection of inner strengths. Hmm. That's lovely. (laughs) You know, 
Yeah. It's like a collection, collection of, of inner strengths, strengths that you can cultivate, that you can grow, right? And that you can determine which ones you really need to work on based on what your needs are or what needs are, are lacking. And so to your question about practices, you know, some things that have been really helpful for me around resilience are um, self-compassion. That's a big one. Um which, you know, involves learning to be kind to yourself and to kind of show up for yourself in the way that you show up for other people. At least that's how I think about it. So there is, obviously, I'm I'm an activist, you know, and I, I fight for people that I love, you know. I, I fight for the survival of my people and all that kind of stuff. So I had a friend that was feeling um, feeling suicidal, a while back and nothing was working you know medication therapy you know nothing was working and so i made the difficult decision to call 911 mm. and they took them to this facility that is notorious for mistreating patients Ooh. i didn't know mm-hmm you're trying to help your friend. Exactly. You know, I had no idea. And I was reluctant to call 911 because right. of this kind of thing. Like, this is a person of color. I've been to the emergency room for this. Yeah. You know, and I know that I have felt criminalized and all that kind of stuff. I felt like I did something wrong. Right. Yeah. So I didn't want to call 911, but I, exactly, I was trying to help my friend. So... I visited them every single day while they were in, like, every they had visiting hours. They had two visiting hours, and I would try to go to both visiting hours. And they would tell me what was going on. And, you know, so I demanded that I speak to someone in charge. You know, I wrote letter. You know, I wrote, I wrote like, some emails that I was ready to send. You know, they... You know, and my friend has a very specific kind of diet, you know, like they they don't eat meat. They, you know, they only really eat fish and all these other kinds of things. Right. And so this facility is giving them the wrong medication, a medication mm. they already know from their psychiatrist will not work for them, um, is giving them meat, is not. And they were injured at the time, too. So that and they and they weren't helping them. You know, the staff was not helping them get around. So, like, I found myself going to the grocery store and, like, buying, like, protein bars and things like that and sneaking it into this facility so that this person could have, you know, something substantial, right? And ultimately, like, there came a point where I was like, if I have to chain myself to this door and get on Facebook Live and rally people here to bring attention to this thing, that is what I will do. Mm -hmm. Um. And my aunt and my friend are like, no, Andre, like, don't do that, right? So I tell this story to say, like, that is how I show up for people, right? Or the, how I'm willing to show up for people. And in the in the practice of self compassion, I have had to ask myself, what would it look like for that Andre to show up for me? Yes. You know. What would it look like for me to love myself in that way, right? And to to call on that resource, you know, to love me in that way. 
Um, so that has been a huge one. Mindfulness is another, um, and I won't go into every single one of them. Mindfulness is another one right now that I've been working on more. And these two together are helping a lot, you know? Um, you know, with self-compassion, there's a lot of layers, you know, there's acceptance and um, enjoying yourself and finding refuge. And all of these are self-compassion skills, you know? that I've been using. And so I was actually, I would throw in the acceptance part as well, which is just like, okay, like there's some things that are just going to be what they are right now, right? And it doesn't mean that you're not going to work on changing them, you know, but when you accept, when you don't fight with the things that you can't change right now, you know, like you are, you're giving yourself a gift, <laughs> You know, to not stress, more, like to not put more stress on your body, more stress on your nervous system. And so what I'm talking about with race-related stress, oppression-related stress, the stress of living under uh, capitalism, exploitation, all those kind of things, these things help a great deal because these systems want for us to think that it's our fault that we're suffering. Yeah. It's always blaming the victim, Right. Well, through my self-compassion lens, I'm like, no, actually, <laughs> what you're feeling is understandable, given the circumstances. Through mindfulness, I can decide how, where I'm going to direct my attention and how much, like, what I'm going to pay attention to. Through acceptance, I can say, okay, like, this does really suck right now, but there's not much more I can do right now. And we're just going to take it a bit at a time, you know, and all of these things really have been creating this internal, I hate calling it strength, you know, because people have like value judgments about strength and weakness and a binary understanding of that. But it has created this space where things that would usually really overwhelm me, paralyze me, take me to a place of hope, hopelessness, don't as much anymore. Mm -hmm. I know that was a crazy long response to that question, tying all those things together, but that's how the resilience part is really working. And the one thing, other thing I want to say about resilience is I often imagine, you know, what it would be like for those who are invested in oppression to have to face off with people who are spiritually strong. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, Dr. Damnit Sethi says that uh, these systems that oppress are at their best when we are not. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That's how they and, continue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it makes us easier to dominate. It makes mm -hmm. it harder for us to act. So... That's also why, like, I don't want for us to pursue resilience for, you know, confrontations in that way, but it is an immediate way that we can grasp for our freedom and liberation mm -hmm. and experience a bit of that in the present. And it also helps us, enables us to, pur to pursue that vision of tomorrow that we have. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that, Andre, because it is a daily practice and it's long-term what you're describing is not, it takes a long time to describe because it's not just something you do once and you're done and you're good. <laughs> this is a commitment to 
a way of life. And I'm reminded of Dr. King saying nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. And that that practice of nonviolence is about the relentless pursuit of justice in terms of systemic social change. And it's about that relentless love of self and reclaiming the belovedness, reclaiming the goodness that is innate to each of us. And that in so many ways, this world that we live in tries to strip away and demean and dehumanize. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I also think about the, in the, in the book that you wrote, all the white friends I couldn't keep, you have a chapter about the personal is political. Yes. And and you tell the stories of ways in which those two spheres are bifurcated by white supremacy um, and the toll that that took on you. And, and there's this quote I want to share that really struck me. You say, when we're given the time and space to reflect together, we're able to recognize that our personal problems are part of a shared struggle, a mistake some Black people face while waking up to white supremacy is to assume that the white people who are around us pre-awakening will hold that kind of space for us as we shake off the white world's lies. Mm-hmm. I find myself really curious as you're describing this work that you're doing in terms of resilience, in terms of self-compassion, in terms of how do you engage in this work sustainably in a, in a soulful, soul-honoring way. Um, I'm curious how that has shifted the way that you seek supportive spaces for yourself. Like what does community look like? What are some of the red flags that you now stay away from, (laughs) which you wrote a whole book about. (laughs) I'm also really curious about like, what are the, what are the green flags, right? Like what, what do you run toward in terms of friendship, in terms of love, in terms of belonging, um, that help you to know like these are these are people with whom I can continue in this work of resilience and res- and revolution. I think the short answer is just you know I look for people who are interested in what you just said. I think that an assumption that some people can make and that I have made, and I I see people continue to make who say that they care about change, is they begin to essentialize folks with more privilege than them um and 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 people who are in their group too and we essentialize them in this way right like men are trash uh all white people are are racist are bad you know and things like that and i'm i'm not even trying to debate with all of those times types of statements because i know that for instance when people say that all white people are racist they have a theoretical framework that on its own terms does make sense if you're willing to think of it in the terms of the argument right however (laughs) um there are some scholars cedric johnson comes to mind uh, a black man who writes a lot about you know um writes a lot about racial justice and has been critical of some of some of the intellectual habits of the Black Lives Matter era. One point that he makes that I think is very salient is that a shared identity does not make you a constituency. So just because I'm around Black people doesn't mean that like 
I'm never going to experience othering. I'm never going to experience betrayal. I'm never going to, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. And that was a habit that I, that was a mistake that I made intellectually for, for a while was thinking, well, this is so common in white spaces. I just don't want to deal with white people or non-black people at all. I just want to be around black people. And then experiencing really deep hurt, you know, in, in spaces where people share the same racial identity as me, but we don't share the same values. Mm. you know like, we don't just because we just because we just because we're have more melanin content in our skin doesn't mean that like you know we're aligned and so for me community the green flags to me are people who are doing some kind of soul work themselves you know and who are interested in doing soul work together and those people are hard to find because it, it's vulnerable work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it yeah. takes it takes so much um, willingness to be to be exposed and to to to, to also be honest about our own right. learn learning and growing edges. Right. And that's not something that is yeah. celebrated in this society that we live in that wants there to be these binaries of you're all right or you're all wrong. Um, and those binaries exist even on the social justice side of things and mm -hmm. social justice basis. So that's that's a big part of it where what you're saying is about like that vulnerability to grow, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to say like, I need to work on this or um, I need to grow in this area or whatever is something that folks in the social, social justice space now are talking about a lot because what, what has happened is this widespread misconception that I've been too marginalized to be accountable. I've been too marginalized to be wrong, you know, about something. And so I find myself in conversation saying, like, the thing that we've been fighting against is a system that refuses to admit how problematic it is and has been. And then we create these enclaves of self-righteous social justice warriors that also do not want to talk about our growing edges, our mistakes, and all that. And it's just repeating the cycle, you know, with progressive language, mm -hmm. you know. I'm not into it. So that's also why I struggle sometimes, you know, with, with identifying as an activist because a lot of activists I know just want to be and I understand it. I don't want to make it sound like I don't get it. Like, because I, I see it in myself. I fought some of the same impulses and still do fight some of the same impulses. But it's just, I don't want to just critique everything in public. And it becomes this competition of who's got the best politics? Who's the most radical? And as soon as we need to talk about, you know, the ways that we need to continue to grow, because it's the only way that we're going to be able to change the world, then people default to, I'm, I'm this, I hold these identities, and you hold those identities. So how dare you, <laughs> you know? That makes me think about Father Greg Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries, and he talks about unshakable goodness. Mm. And specifically, you know, in his work, he's he's working in a community of folks who are formerly gang involved and previously incarcerated. And in so many in so many cases, those 
folks have completely lost touch with that sense of their goodness because they've been told in so many ways and it's been enacted upon their bodies that they are disposable. Right. And so what are those spaces that we can come home to and be reminded of our unshakable goodness? And I know that for me, one of the spaces for me that that has been true for now nearly a decade is my friendship with you. And that's, I think, the place I want to land the plane here (laughs) with this (laughs) conversation is to talk a little bit about about our friendship um, and and, and what it means to be navigating this resilience, resiliency and revolutionary work Mm -hmm. in a very personal way, right? For me as a white cishet woman um and for you as a black man to be navigating to be navigating this relationship this friendship that is fraught with (laughs) (laughs) so many historic systemic injustices um given our identity the the social locations that we inhabit and i and i'm curious you know to hear from you about what the values are that that you bring into yeah. friendship that we hold and, and how we hold space for one another. Yeah. No, it is interesting because we've, we have navigated conversations that could have easily been derailed if we were to only see each other as representatives of a category. Right. Know? I think that a huge core value that I bring into our friendship is one is, um, well, there are two that immediately strike me. One is just that this tension between the individual and whatever you want to call the other, the collective, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one. It's like that tension between the in- individual and the collective. And the other is really just treating people the way I want to be treated. You know, like I really... I think you could even subsume the first one I said into that one. I think that's the core value is just, it's treating others the way that I want to be treated. So for me, I see my, my position in society as, you know, a, as someone assigned, you know, someone that presents as male, right. As, someone who is straight, someone who is in, intelligent and has been able to go to, yeah, I have two degrees, you know, all these things. So I, I have levels of privilege that people, that other people don't. And in some ways, I've been able to get an audience, get have people hear me in ways that some Black women might look at me and say, why you know like why why do we keep platforming you know black men in this way right i've made mistakes and i've unlearned things all kinds of but i don't want to be defined by these categories right you know i i want people to see my my personality my my heart to do better my my individuality and all that kind of stuff and so i think that's just a core value that i bring into my relationships with and it, it plays out in my relationship with you too, because I I don't see you as just some white woman. You're you're my sister. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I wouldn't want anyone to see me as just some black man. And that has happened to me in relationships where one day I was Andre, and the next day I'm just some black man. And that has been 
a justification for, you know, violence in some ways, you know, which just is not fair. So I think that's a big, I know that's a big part of it. And the other thing I think is just people, and people have tried to push this on me in some ways where it's like, oh, I'm too friendly with non-Black people, you know? Mm-hmm. And the fact that non-Black people appreciate my voice so much is a red flag, <laughs> you know? And I've had people who have tried to push me to be angrier, snarkier. Other than, and not to say, like, I, I have a smart mouth. We all know this, you know? <laughs> oh. Like, it's not like I, I don't already have some of that, but some people have, you know, really tried to push me in that direction. And I just think it's intellectually dishonest, one, for me to make identity so determinative. I also just don't believe in scapegoating. And I've seen a lot of activists do this, where they take a representative of some more privileged group than them and act as though it's justice in some way to punish them for things that people of their group have done. I used to say this when I like when I when I first started. It's like if I see a tiger, it wouldn't make any sense for me to be like, well, I've seen one video where a guy is friends with tigers. So I can't <laughs> assume that this tiger is gonna maul me and eat me. <laughs> that would be that would be prejudice of me. I think there there is a context where that makes sense, you know, which is what I when I made that analogy, I wasn't even talking about white people. I was talking about the police. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there came a point where I had to realize that one, I have to heal. I, I can't be mad all the time. Can't be irritated all the time. And so there was a time when I just like I felt like man, white people just get on my nerves. I just don't want to be around any white people, right? In healing, that just kind of went away, you know? And not that I'm healed, but, you know, in the process of, you know, healing, like, that just kind of went away. There were always a few white people in my life that always made it impossible for me to put all white people in that category. And it was you and Mitch and Mike Kinman, you know? So that was another thing. That's the intellectual honesty part, where it's just like, it just isn't true, you know. It, it bothers me a lot what we've done with identity politics. I Identity politics are, are useful. And I think the only reason in our culture why there's such a disdain for the phrase is because it's a phrase coined by Black women, you know. Mm-hmm. You and know? it's been potent in yes. enacting shifts yeah. mm-hmm. yes. and change. Absolutely. But I don't think that what the Combahee River Collective (laughs) intended to do when they coined the phrase identity politics is what many of us are doing, Mm. which is saying that because you are white, because you are male, because you are straight, you know, that means that I know exactly how you think. I know more about you than you know about yourself. You know, all the, and I, I get why people said that as well. The latter, I know that you know, we know more about our oppressors than than the or than the oppressors know about themselves. Yeah, as a group, maybe you know, I know more about American history than most white Americans because right. I've had to read more about it. I'm saying I need to talk more about my mistakes, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. 
I ain't got invited to speak in a class in a college years ago. Maybe like six, seven years ago. Um, with a woman that I considered a mentor. And she was very much into Afro-pessimism. And one of the tenets of Afro-pessimism, or not, I shouldn't say tenets, but one of the points that some Afro-pessimists make is about the sense of joy that white people have historically gotten from viewing or making spectacles of anti-Black violence. Mm. I think about like the lynchings, you know, how they would have countywide picnics and set black people on fire and hang them from trees and all this kind of, you know, and it was a, it was a form of entertainment. Right. And so, you know, I'm teaching and I'm kind of parroting what this woman had been teaching me about Afro-pessimism, you know, which I regret. Like I should have, I should have thought more critically. I don't reject it categorically, Mm -hmm. the whole field of Afro-pessimism, but I should have, thought more critically about the things that we were conversing about. And there was a moment where I can't remember exactly what this student said, but my mentor had kind of interjected and had asked about the use of sharing police videos of police violence, right? And I don't remember what all of these, you know, responses were, but I remember her looking this young white student in the face and saying, you experienced joy at that, you know? So like she's telling him that he experienced joy. Well, that's, that's not your decision to make, mm. you know? And it doesn't matter how many PhDs somebody has and how many theoretical books have been written about it. I don't believe that you get to look an individual in the face and tell them what they feel, you know, about something like that, especially in that context. That's a corruption, I think, of identity politics, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just essentializing. I think those are the values, treating people the way they want to be treated of letting people be individuals and not categorizing them in those ways of love. You know, I think those are the things that are at play in our friendship. Thank you. You mentioned love and I want to, I want to take a second to, to sit with that because we've often talked in our in our friendship and in conversations about nonviolent social change mm-hmm. about um the fact that there's a lot of people who hear nonviolence and they just think love and it's this really thin paltry notion of what love is that i don't know is some nice sense some nice feeling <laughs> some some just yeah. sense of of you know goodwill toward humanity in general um yeah. that doesn't really engage with right injustice or seek to make the world more whole with and with all the complexity that that entails. And so I know that for you, with with your engagement with with nonviolent social change, that that you really tend toward the strategic yeah. and thinking about social change as a project that we can engage with in using the best of our intellectual efforts, using the best of our collaborative efforts. Yeah. Um, and to to be planners, <laughs> to really plan for for good. Yeah. Um, 
so as we as we wrap up here, I just like to invite you to share like what is your vision for what could be the world that we are working toward together and how we get there together. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. When I when I think about nonviolent struggle, it's mostly about it being useful, you know, or at least it has been. But I do I do think that we should trust the folks in the Black radical tradition that tell us that love is still important, right, as a political force, right? We just don't want to be manipulated by people who are telling us that love means that we don't resist our own oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Because in that way, they're telling us not to love ourselves, (laughs) you know? And I've been involved in loveless activist groups, you know? Um... Where love was not, I mean, there was talk about love, mm-hmm. right? But we we know that like it it matters way more how you treat me when you talk about love, right? Than than what you say, and that was just not present, and that was demoralizing. It was exhausting. It was traumatizing, mm-hmm. you know. And you mentioned my friend Ben McBride before we started recording this, and I I love you know, the challenge that Ben gives to people when they push back on the way that he describes the the other side of our activism is belonging, right? A world where no one is outside the circle of human concern. Everyone belongs, even your opponents, even your enemies, right? Which a lot of people don't want to hear. And his challenge to them is often, okay, so what are we going to do with that? Mm-hmm. We're gonna kill him. And I had I had thought about that before. I love the way that he words it, but I had thought about that in the conversation that I told you where I feel like people were trying to push me to be angrier, snarkier, more, even more violent. I I used to ask people the question, okay, let's let's assume. Let's assume that you could win oh uh an armed struggle against the United States Army. You can't, by the way, but let's assume that you could and you could kill everyone that you think is an oppressor. Who would we become while we're doing that? I think that that question has kept for a while. It had love kind of haunting me as an activist. And then I realized Mm. eventually, like, it just has to be a part of it because without it, you just end up recreating the same kinds of problems that you're fighting against it's hard to dream past the process of changing the world for me right now you know i think it's hard for all of us to do that which is what i I challenge people to do in my work is like okay i want you to think about what would a racially just society be like and i don't want you to tell me about what wouldn't be there i want you to tell me what would what has wrecked the world and is continuing to do damage in the world is a global economy that's based on exploitation, mm-hmm. right? A global economy. And when I say economy, I don't just mean money. I, 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 I am including the institutions that, that make that economy possible, but also the, the common sense, the distorted common sense that tells us that some people 
are not worthy of care or being or or uh, worthy of being cared for, right? Or being cared about, right? And I think that ultimately that vision of tomorrow that I have is a world where care is our common sense. Mm-hmm. Where we do understand that, you know, we belong to each other, you yeah. know, and that we're not going to survive. We're not going to survive as a species if we continue down this path of division and competition and sub- subjugation, you know, all that kind of thing. Thank you, Andre. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to be in conversation with you. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You can follow Andre on social media at the Andre Henry. His book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives, is available wherever books are sold. Links to his website and music are in the show notes of this episode. As always, a soulful revolution is made entirely possible by listeners like you. If you like what you heard today, please consider signing up as a paid subscriber on Substack. Interviews with soulful revolutionaries are released every month, and weekly newsletters feature reflections on nonviolent social change grounded in practices of healing, compassion, and community. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.